0: Welcome to the Fairview Church podcast. At Fairview Church, we are dedicated to reaching our neighbors with the true freedom found in full surrender to Christ. To find out more about our church, including service times, location, and current sermon series, please visit us online at www.myfairview.org. Amen. Well, uh, so my first question is, what's wrong with you? This is fall break. It's it's like everybody else is gone, but you're here. I guess you're the the faithful, or maybe you just didn't have the money set aside to do anything, maybe. But anyway, you're here. Don't leave, though, just because maybe some of you didn't even know it was fall break. All I know is when I was a kid, we didn't have fall break, so I'm a little bit jealous of this fall break stuff. But anyway, Brant and Jill uh, are uh, great parents, and they're they're in the smoky somewhere, having a good time. All I heard was... Jack was having fun wrestling a goat, so I I don't know, Um, but uh, anyway, I'm filling in for him, so if you're a guest or if you're watching online, please do not make any judgments about this church because I'm not the pastor, fortunately. Brant, my son, is, so come back. Um, Now, Brant has been preaching through the Gospel of John, and uh, I've really been enjoying it. Uh, brand has this really this unique ability i think to kind of really understand all the richness of the text in terms of the what's going on in the jewish traditions and the history of the old testament and he i think catches things that often are not fully understood and i I don't have that uh, same uh, level of depth i occasionally will say to my family you know there are some advantages to being shallow and um but Brant's not shallow. He's, he really works the text and whatnot. And uh, so if he doesn't like what I do today, well, he can come back to John 11 next week, okay? But John 11 is about Lazarus, okay? And it's a familiar story. Uh, in fact, I find it's a challenge sometimes to teach on really familiar passages. It shouldn't be. They're beautiful like, you know, Psalm 23 and... Uh, many others that we could uh, talk about, but uh, this is a story that most many of you have grown up with. Okay, and if if you didn't grow up in the church, then maybe not. But uh, so what I'm let me tell you what I'm going to try to do. All right, I'm going to briefly examine the story itself of of Lazarus and his death and kind of the. There's always I find in scripture often there's this. Uh, Kind of day-to-day narrative of what's going on with the players. It's kind of like a good movie. There'll be a, there'll be this grand narrative. You've heard me. Some of you've heard me talk about this before. There's be this compelling grand narrative, and then there's all the sub narratives and subplots that go on at the same time. So we're going to see this in this text, kind of weaving in between the grand narrative of Scripture and the big picture of what Jesus was trying to accomplish or did accomplish versus some of the relational subplots, right, that are interesting but less important. And, um, but I mainly want to shift fairly soon to talking about you, okay, because that's really one of the main objectives of preaching and teaching God's Word is, is that it has an impact on your lives, okay. And uh, so we're going to try to do that. So let's pray to that effect because if you're not in the mindset right now of being teachable and humble and let's pray that you would, okay? Lord, we admit that we are uh, sinners, and we often live our lives in ways that may not fully please you, and so today we acknowledge we need your help and perspective on, on any number of things, and that we would humble ourselves before you with a teachable spirit. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So in, in John 11, you'll see, we're going to look at the first, like, 17 verses, and um you're gonna, so we'll just kind of walk through that kind of briefly. Um, let me get back over to that text. And so the story of Lazarus, it says, Now a man was sick, Lazarus, from Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. And it was her brother Lazarus who was sick. So the sister sent a message to him, Lord, the one you love is sick. When Jesus heard it, he said, This sickness will not end in death, but is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, I'm going to pause there just briefly. This is what I meant when I, I said you're going to see this kind of double narrative woven in this text where you have the grand narrative and then the subplot narrative. Well, the grand narrative was Jesus is the Messiah. So if any of you watch and have watched the chosen Uh, TV series. I think they've done a really great job of trying to make, let let us look at what that might have looked like. And uh, you can, if you've seen it, you can understand the the personalities of how the disciples, they struggled between the immediate narrative of their lives and this grand narrative of of living at an amazing time in history where the son of God took on flesh and the All the promises of the Old Testament about the Messiah were playing out right in front of them. It had to be just amazing, right? And so we kind of go between those two narratives. Well, Jesus just said regarding the death of Lazarus that it happened for the glory of God. Okay, so, and clearly we're going to see here in a minute that the disciples, they didn't get it. Okay, they often didn't get it. Uh, Eventually they did. Uh, but there's something bigger going on here than just the story of Lazarus, all right? And so picking up there, it goes, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place that where he was. Now, once again, this is the big narrative here. It makes no sense. Normally, what would you expect Jesus to do? Leave immediately. There's a need. He was always responsive. He loved Lazarus. He loved Martha and Mary, so the expectation would have been, I'm on my way, right? Okay, but, but it says he stayed two more days, okay? And that we can speculate a little bit about that, but it seems like it's part of the, the grand narrative. And I'm going to comment in a moment why he may have delayed his departure, okay? So let me pick up where we left off. Um, he stayed two more days. Then, after that, he said to his disciples, "Let's go to Judea again, where this, where Lazarus was." And now, here, here you are going to see how the the disciples are often struggling to get it right. Rabbi, the disciples told him, "Just now, the Jews tried to stone you, and you are going back there again." See, once again, the humanity of the disciples questioning the wisdom of Jesus. Like, you are going to die. We're all going to die. You know, why would you go back there? Now, Jesus makes an uh, interesting comment in verse 9, and I don't claim to fully understand it, but it's, it's another where he bounces from the narrative of day-to-day life to this grander narrative. It says, aren't there 12 hours in a day? Jesus answered, if anyone walks during the day, he does not stumble because he sees the, the light of this world. But if anyone walks during the night, he does not stumble because the light is not in him. And Now, now just imagine, the disciples are probably going, what? <laughs> what? I mean, we're talking about Lazarus, and we're talking about getting killed. If we go back to Judea, I have no clue what you just said, you know. Um, so, you know, who knows what they were thinking, but they, they had to be confused, I would think. And then he, then he goes on and he said, and then he told his disciples, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. But I'm on my way to wake him up. Now, once again, I love this um, this this ability to either understand or misunderstand something. Then the disciples said to him, well, Lord, if he's falling asleep, what's the big deal? He's going to get well. I mean, it's like, why would we stop what we're doing, go back to a dangerous place, to this journey? He's just asleep. And Jesus, however, was speaking about his death, but they thought he was speaking about natural sleep. So Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. Now you can imagine the change in the looks in their eyes and the expression on their faces and the countenance. Oh, Lazarus has died? You can see how that might have looked. And he said, but let's go to him. Then Thomas, now here's another weird thing. Then Thomas said to his fellow disciples, let's go to this so we may die with him. It's like, now remember Thomas, he was called Doubting Thomas, you know, but, but here he apparently, I don't know how you, I don't know what you make of this, but it's like he either, was displaying some amazing amount of courage or, or he just wasn't very smart. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know. It's like, okay. You know, a while ago, they were worried about going back to Judea. Now he's saying, well, let's all go die together. You know, it's like, once again, the disciples are really thick-headed. They don't understand what's going on here. At least Thomas in particular. When Jesus arrived, they found Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, remember, I said earlier, that statement where Jesus waited for two days, okay, this comes back into play here. So I'm told uh, Jewish scholars or scholars of any kind who understand um, the, what was going on in the times of Christ said that there were some traditions there among some of the Jewish scholars where they believed that the soul of an individual would linger with the body for four days after death. Of course, there's no basis for that at all. and uh, But apparently, just because that was, remember, you know, everybody was always, all these Jewish leaders were trying to poke holes in what Jesus was saying and try to find reason to kill him, which they ultimately did. Um, and so it appears that it's possible that one of the reasons Jesus delayed for two days was so that by the time he got there, it would have been Day four, and the, and the Jewish leaders, when, when Lazarus came back from the dead, they couldn't say, well, of course, you know, his soul was still there. You follow that? Kind of an interesting little side story that may be part of this narrative. Bethany was near Jerusalem, less than two miles away. Many of the Jews had come to Martha and to Mary and comfort them about their brother. And, and then verse 21, as soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him that Mary remained seated in the house. So that first part of our outline here, I think, is is the whole story of uh, Lazarus' death. And then I, I put up some questions here about. Uh, if you read on to verse twenty-one, we'll talk about Martha just for a moment here. Then Martha said to Jesus, "Lord, if you had been here in my, uh, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Yet even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God." Will give you, and then I had a set of questions here in my own mind about, okay, what was the basis of Martha's confidence that Jesus wanted to heal Lazarus, could have healed Lazarus, or still would heal Lazarus? What's the, what is the basis of her, of her claim? And I even asked myself these questions: Was her expectation of Jesus a subjective feeling of faith or belief? Was it mere hope, hopefulness? Had Jesus promised her? That a tragedy, a tragedy like this, would not befall her or her family. Did she think she had a special, favored status with Jesus and deserved his intervention? I don't really know what was going on in in the heart and mind of Martha. I'm going to, I'm going to speculate in a in a minute as to. Uh, I I think we can look to Martha as a great example of faith, and we'll we'll explain that here as we. Move forward, and so, but here's where I want to transition. Based on what we've seen in this story, in Martha's response of conviction that Jesus should have, or might still do something miraculous, her faith was evident; was on display. Now, what about your faith? So, if I I, I kind of played this out, uh, we came over to do some things with Patty's parents, Jim and Joyce, uh, uh, and I, I. We were eating. By the way, I, I do some favors for them and uh, and, uh, and in response, I get fried okra and uh, biscuits and gravy. So I had biscuits and gravy this morning. i uh, make you a little hungry here. But I at the dinner table last night, I, I said to them, I said, um, how, how, how have you demonstrated faith in your lives lately? Well, Joyce was, was interesting. She kind of turned it around on me a few hours later and asked me the same question. I said, no, 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 I was the one asking the question. Uh, but it, but I wanted to, to get a response to the, how do we... So if I were to ask you, do you consider yourself a person of faith? Probably most everybody in here, unless you're here out of pure obligation for some reason, uh, or you don't even know why you're here. Um, uh, but, uh, or maybe you're a Nebraska football fan and you're just here out of sorrow, I don't know. But anyway... Most of you would say, well, of course, I am a person of faith. I'm here. I'm in a church. I consider myself a Christian. Um, and sometimes when we talk about other people, we'll say, well, that's a person of faith. And we have some reason for concluding that that individual has expressed belief in God and the Bible and Jesus. Okay, okay. So they're a person of faith. So most of you probably would consider yourself a person of faith, right? Here's the second question. Would you consider yourself as a person who walks in faith? You see that? That's a different question. To say you're a person of faith probably means you believe that Christ is the Savior. He died on the cross in your place and you've depended upon him for salvation. That's probably what you would say what it means to be I'm a person of faith. But the more question that I think is more relevant. I mean, that's very relevant. But another question would be, are you a person who could be described by others who know you well as one who walks in faith, right? And so that's what we're going to be talking about. So as I've wrestled through trying to explain and think about this, I love clarity. I don't always have clarity but I just, I love clarity. I love when things are clear and make sense and logical and somebody speaks in a way that you get what they, you don't have to ask five questions to try to figure out what they just said. I love clarity. And so I've wrestled, I really wanna be clear today about this subject of faith. The first point we're gonna talk about that I is important is faith includes but is not defined or controlled by emotion. I think this is where it gets a little muddled for some of us, is that I think in some ways we equate faith with some kind of a feeling, where we muster up this sense of confidence. Okay, now I teased Terry Kemp Senior earlier this morning. He was here, and he bumped into me in the, the, the foyer. He had all of his Tennessee stuff on. Man, he was just as he was just pumped, you know, because Tennessee's good finally. And, um, and he's just got this abundance of confidence. And, and I think he really believes they're going to beat Alabama next, next week. But, but it's like, like, where did this come from? You guys have been sorry for two decades, just like Nebraska. But now, man, you're just walking around like a peacock. And, um, you could tell, man, he, it's, he feels it. Confidence. Okay. Some of us, that's kind of, I think, how we view faith is we muster this. Sense of confidence, right, and uh, this sense, this emotional—really, it's an emotional state where, man, I just really believe God's going to do this or whatever. And so we we see it as something to be mustered up, so to speak. All right, I don't know if that's a phrase. That may be all kinds of grammar problems. Mustered up, but uh, something about that now. I'm going to go ahead and go back to... I'm going to go to the second point and then I'm going to come back to an illustration that I think will try to explain this. Faith centers upon the person of God and his word, okay? So the first point was trying to say that faith is not this feeling or subjective kind of a state of heart and mind, uh, but it's, it's objective. Faith centers upon the person of God and his word. We have all kinds of confidence or all kinds of examples of this in the Bible where the the faith that's, you know, go read Hebrews 11. That's the hall of faith in the Bible. All the people who really were known for men and women of faith who acted with great obedience and confidence in God, their names are listed there, right? And, and some of them that came to my mind, uh, people that we think of faith was was Moses responding to God and God summoned him to do various things. David, the prophets, Joshua and Caleb and and, and on and on. Even the disciples when Jesus said, follow me, you know, without explanation, follow me. So we see examples of people acting on on faith. And and I think underneath all of that is they had some knowledge of who God was. It wasn't something they mustered up, conjured up. They knew something about the nature and character of God that was the foundation of them acting in faith. They believed God was God. God was in charge. He's in command. He knows what he's doing. He's the source of all wisdom. He has a plan for our life. And when God speaks to us, right, the only natural, logical, rational conclusion is we're going to do what he says, right? And so it's objective throughout most of history. It's based in the knowledge of who God is and what his demands are. Okay, so it's not mushy, gushy, subjective. It's objective, okay? And I'm gonna use an illustration that I remember. So one of, one of my personal favorite preachers back when I was younger was a guy named Ron Dunn. Great preacher, by the way. In fact, I think you can still get access to his sermons if you want something else to put on your iPod or listen to in your car. Ron Dunn. And he had a, a, a sermon once on faith, and I don't remember the whole sermon, although I think I have it in my notes somewhere, but I do remember his illustration. And he, So Patty and I were recently up in central Minnesota to see some friends, and, um, uh, and then they just told us they were in northern Minnesota a couple of weeks ago for the fall colors, but pretty soon in northern Minnesota, what's going to happen to the lakes? They're going to freeze over. And my friend even has talked about inviting me back to go ice fishing. I've never, I've never done ice fishing before. But Ron, uh, Ron Dunn used the analogy of this guy, we'll just say from Tennessee, okay, who goes up to, do, to go ice, ice fishing in December. He's got all of his gear, and he walks up to the lake, and what does he do? You know, he kind of puts his foot out there, and he, he tests the ice a little bit, and he listens, and he scoots out a little more, and he listens. You know, and the whole time he's scared to death that he's going to fall through, Right? And while he's doing that, there's a guy from northern Minnesota that rumbles up in his big truck and just drives straight out in the middle of the lake and starts drilling a hole through the ice. No reservation, total confidence. Now, did the guy from Tennessee just, was he just weak and subjectively fearful? And the guy from Minnesota was this great man of faith who conjured up all these feelings of confidence. What was the difference between the two? The guy from Minnesota knows the ice. It's not subjective, it's objective. He's lived there, he knows that by a certain time of the year, a certain temperature of air over a period of time, you're gonna have 12 inches of ice and you can drive your truck right out on it. Now, I still wouldn't do it. I don't know about you, how many would drive a truck out on a lake in the middle of the winter? Some of you, okay, God bless you. Um, You would, okay. Um, well, it's, but it's objective. Okay. You see the analogy there? He knew the ice. Okay. And so that's what we're trying to talk about here in these first two points about faith is not defined or controlled by emotion. It centers upon the person of God and his word. Now, this, we have three more points and a few other things I'll throw in there, but, uh, uh the, the next point is faith is usually challenged by a problem. Now, I think this is where I have to bring some clarity in. Faith is usually challenged by a problem. There are a lot of examples in the Bible. My favorite one is Gideon. So, in an attempt to feed your own mind and heart, I would encourage you to go to Judges chapter 6, 7 and 8 and re- and reread the story of Gideon, okay? God um, did something amazing through Gideon, but I, and this is not on the outline, so bear with me, but I think it's important to distinguish between three different contexts. Okay, you with me? Matt, you with me? Three different contexts. The first context would be uh, what I call God calling you to something specific. All right? And that can be a little tricky to figure that, but God calls you to something. I can relate to that. He called me away from ranching to the ministry, okay? So a calling, a summons of God, okay? The second category would be just a big problem hits your life. You, all of a sudden, man, you, there's something sideswiped you, health, marriage, job. It could be a lot of things where all of a sudden there's a crisis, if you will, that you're now in the midst of, and what is going on, okay? What do we do now? So that's the second context where we talk about faith. The third context, which I think is often ignored when we talk about faith, is just what I'm going to call day-to-day obedience. Day-to-day obedience. Because if if you walk with God in a way that's pleasing to him, it means you have a regular lifestyle of obeying him. And that is faith. Every time you choose to obey God, it's an act of faith on your part. Okay, so those are the three areas that we need to keep in mind. Now, this point here is is talking about you're moseying through life, and a problem hits you. Often, that is what God does use to grow and develop and enhance our faith. We're we're kind of going through life pretty comfortably, and then all of a sudden, and of course, life can change on a dime. We all have stories of that, right? Even in this church just recently, one of the folks in our small group, um, her sister's husband just died in his sleep. He was like 40-something and three kids, and boom, life is now very different for that family, right? So when a problem hits us, and I would say I can't fully unpack this today, but I would encourage you to go look at some of these passages, Hebrews chapter 11, Judges chapters 6, 7, and 8. And there are so many others where we can gain perspective on how do we respond to these kinds of things. The next point is faith usually, if not always, requires action prior to seeing results. Now this, this is particularly true with the category of God calling or, or summons in you in some way. It always seems to require action Before you see results. By the way, you don't always see results. I'll talk about that in a minute. But I love the example of the 10 lepers, right? In Luke 17, they sought out Jesus. They heard about his miracle working power. They sought him out. They obviously wanted to be relieved of this terrible uh, problem of of leprosy. And um, they came to Jesus and uh, they asked to be healed. And what did he tell them? You remember? Told them to go see the priest. Remember that? Now, what was really crazy about that? They were not allowed to go see the priest. They were unclean, right? So Jesus asked them to do, he did not immediately heal them. He, he asked them to do something that made no sense. And yet, if you read the text, it says they chose to obey. And as they were going, they were healed. I love that example of how. Sometimes we take that step in a direction that we believe is honoring to God, following his will. And by the way, the Bible is loaded with prescriptions. You don't have to spend a whole lot of time, what's God's will? You know, I know there are sometimes life circumstances and you're trying to figure out what's the best path forward for you. But generally speaking, we know the will of God. It's clear. It's objective. It's stated. It is called obedience, okay? It's called obedience. Do what he says, But in that act of obedience, then the the work of God became evident and a a miracle occurred. Okay, so that's another kind of thought about faith is sometimes we just go like the disciples. They followed even though they had no clue. Same with me. I'm not equal to the disciples, of course. Uh, I think I would have been a lot like Peter and I'd have been in trouble a lot. Um, But, you know, when God... I spent some time just alone with God in my spring break of my senior year of college. I need to know, do I go back to the ranch or do I go into the ministry? And after a period of a couple of days, the Lord really did give me some clarity. But all it was was follow. That's all. No labels, no specific, no promises, no assurances. And frankly, a lot of it's been difficult. Okay, But all I knew was Follow. And, and for a lot of us, that's what it is. We follow what we perceive to be God's will. I'm going to skip. There's an interesting quote by Philip Yancey, but I'm going to skip that. That'll tease you if you want it. You can email me. Uh, that talks about the Job experience of faith. But I'm going to end up here with these uh, pithy statements. Now, in the first service, I, I said to the praise team, the code word for your appearance is pithy. So they're on the way now. Pithy, pithy, pithy. Now, so when I was preparing for this uh, sermon, um, some of you that are in my uh, small group, it's not just my small group. Thanks, Adam, by the way, for covering for me today. Um, uh, I have a lot of content. I've collected so much content. I'm just old, okay, and I like to collect stuff. So I have all this content So I'm looking through all of my stuff on faith, all sermon outlines and articles and whatnot, things I've taught or others have taught. And I came upon a sermon outline from a pastor I used to work with in Ohio. And I said to my wife, I know I have too much content, but these are so pithy. I've just got to say them. And uh, now, because I really know this pastor, I work for him. I'm pretty sure these are from Rick Warren. So just for total transparency, he did a lot of those sermons. Uh, so that's, I'm guessing these are, are not unique with him, but I, I like them nonetheless. Okay, so here we go. Six, I think there's six of them. Pithy statements about faith. Number one, believing when I don't see it. The Bible talks a lot about faith as evidence of things not seen, right? You don't see it. Okay, secondly, obeying when I don't understand it. And there will be a lot of those moments. You just don't understand it. Obeying when I don't understand. Giving when I don't have it. How many stories could we tell today on the walk of faith that included money? How many stories? How many people, have, how many of you know that by faith you began to give of your resources back to God, which is consistent with the whole history of God's people and the faith that it has required for you to do that. Persisting when I don't feel like it. You know what? There are a lot of times you're not going to feel like it, right? You just don't feel like it. Going to church or whatever it is. Thanking before I receive it. Now I have to qualify this one. I'm not one of those health, wealth, and prosperity guys at all. A lot of those guys on TV, I wish they would just go to an island somewhere and wait for Jesus to return because they 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 say a lot of things that are not true. Um, thanking ahead of time does not guarantee that your prayer is going to be answered, but it's the spirit of being grateful no matter what, right? And then lastly, trusting if I don't get it. And that's the, the point I just made. Trusting, even if things don't go your way or the answer doesn't come in the way you'd want it to, you still walk the walk of faith, trusting in the overall goodness and sovereignty of God. So now, lastly, you all probably thinking, why didn't you call me up after the pithy statement? Sorry. Um, I just like having you all back there. (laughs) Okay. I talked about the difference between walking by faith and saving faith. There's a difference, right? They're related, but they're different. If you're here today, and you're not absolutely sure where you stand with reference to Jesus, you're belief about him, your commitment to him, your acceptance of what he's done on the cross on your behalf, your repentance in your own life, changing and walking in a different direction. If you're not sure about that, that is so eternally important. That's saving faith. And if you're there, we'd love to talk to you and we'll be hanging out over there by those doors. Some of us would love to talk to you about that. Okay. All right. What's your walk? What's your day-to-day walk in faith look like? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and the wisdom within it. And we pray that perhaps some of us in this room really needed to be kind of reminded once again of what it means to be obedient and to do what we know we should do because it honors you. And then we trust you for the results. Pray that would be true. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Fairview Church Podcast. To find out more about our church, please visit us online at www.myfairview.org.